Good morning, church. Um, have you ever walked into a room, um, maybe you're invited by a friend to a party or something like that, you walk into a room and you go in on the pretense that like your friend is really well-liked and like these are their friends that they're going to go meet and you walk into the room and it becomes really obvious really quickly that the social dynamics of the room are not what you anticipated and, and the person that brought you in maybe isn't as well-liked as you thought. And maybe it's not that they're not well-liked. Maybe it's just that they're not as well-known as you thought. Like, maybe they were bringing a friend so they weren't so scared to walk into the room and you didn't realize that. We thought we were going to go do something fun, but now we're both stressed out. Have you, have you ever been into that kind of a situation where you walk into the middle of something and it's clear that there is a dynamic in the group but it is also clear that I have no idea what is happening in this room right now, and I have like 10 seconds ago to have figured out where my role is. Have you ever been in that kind of a social situation? All right, I got, I got one. All right, we're going with it. Okay. Our text this morning is a little bit like that, in that we're stepping into, we're actually stepping back in time, and we're stepping into a social situation that is, is really foreign to us, and it's really disorienting. Um, and so as we're doing that, we're going to be stepping into a story that's probably familiar to us. Um, if we've been in church at all, we've likely read this or heard it preached before. Um, and so we kind of know the outline of how things are supposed to flow. But if we stop for a minute and we take a slow uh, walk through, we'll realize, oh, there are dynamics at play here that I was not aware of. And like they actually mean something to how I interact with what's happening here. Um, so in that same, that same idea of you got invited to a party and you realize, oh dear, there's a lot more going on in this room than I thought there was going to be, um, I think as we come into our text this morning, um, we're, we're going to have some of those same feelings. And so I just invite you to hang on with me as we explore those. We're in a series that we've called Glory Through Anguish, and we started at the end of the story and are now taking steps backwards, doing essentially instant replays to see how did we get to glory, and what is the glory that we've started with? We started with the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we began, or that's what we celebrated at Easter time, um, was that Jesus has conquered the grave. We sung about it in several different ways this morning, that Jesus has conquered the grave, he's conquered sin and death by his victory victorious resurrection, but we started asking the question that morning, how did we get to this place where we have something to celebrate? And as we took a step back last week from the resurrection into the crucifixion, we realized that that glory came through anguish, and the path that brought Jesus to the glory of the resurrection was difficult. And we're going to take another step back, and how did we get to the crucifixion? Like, we talked about how this was an innocent man that was being sacrificed, and, and, or that was being uh, publicly executed. Like, how did we get to that point? And so we're actually going to take one more step backwards and look at his trial, what was going on, and, and what were the legal proceedings. So if you'll join, me, join with me in that journey, I would I'd really appreciate it, um, and I think it'll be really um, fun um, fun in a really, really interesting, and I learned a lot kind of way, not fun in a, I'm so happy all these things happened. Um, I mean, we get to the glory. Anyway, you'll get what I mean when we get there. 
As we begin, um, I just invite you to pray with me, and it's been our habit over the last couple of years to pray together the disciples' prayer uh, at this point. Um, these aren't magic words. They don't give you any kind of special powers or anything, but this is the, the model of prayer that Jesus left for us, and if we're going to pray them together, it's, best, it's easiest and less awkward for us to use the same words. So I put the words on the screen, and if you're not familiar with it, um, but this is the disciples' prayer. Would you pray together with me as we begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you open with me to Luke chapter 22? We're going to begin in Luke chapter 22. And if you want to use these blue Bibles that are either tucked under your chair or a chair in front of you, it's on page 1102. Luke chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 63. One of the things about Dr. Luke is he wrote really long chapters. It's kind of interesting. Um, So we're in Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said to him, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So we'll pause there. Um, So Jesus has been taken into custody. You may ask yourself, how did that happen? Well, today's doing for next week. We're going to take another step backwards and talk about his arrest. Um, But Jesus has been arrested. And now the men who were holding him in custody were mocking him. And they they blindfolded him. And as they have him blindfolded, they're like, oh, this guy's a prophet. Um, They whack him with sticks and say, who's the guy who hit you? And so before he even gets to trial, he's being abused by the people who arrested him. Um, This is where we start to see some of the different dynamics because he's taken into um, the assembly of elders of people with the chief priests and the scribes. Now, if you have followed through the biographies of Jesus at all, you realize the chief priests and the scribes are religious people. They're people who have authority in church, Um, but I don't know of any church that has their own special police force. So this is where the dynamics of how we are approaching the text are a little bit different. These are religious people who have a council, then they actually do a lot of judging within their community, but they do actually have a some kind of a police force that they use for security at the temple and here in order to make an arrest and bring this guy to. So these guys aren't like real cops. 
Um, and I think they show that by their demeanor and the way that they're treating a prisoner who hasn't yet been to trial. Um, they're beating him and abusing him and, and, and uh, asking him, like, jokes in bad character. Who hits you? Prophesy, prophesy. Um, and I'm, like, as I'm considering that, I'm struck um, that he likely already knew the names of the men who were hitting him. Like, the guys are, are harassing him and, and making jokes, um, but Jesus knew each of them and knew each of their stories and knew where the pain that they were feeling came from that they expressed on him. Um, so Jesus' silence in this moment stands out to me. He didn't prophesy not because he didn't know, but because he was working on something else. So he gets into the trial, and this is the question. Like the whole, the whole trial rests on this question in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, um, if we might think of Christ as like Jesus' last name. So when we talk about Jesus, we often talk about Jesus Christ. Um, but it actually is not his last name. It's a title. Um, Christ is the Greek uh, the Greek translation of a Hebrew word that you'll be familiar with most as Messiah. Um, and Messiah is kind of a fancy word that just means anointed. So an anointing was a symbol of being chosen or marked out. So I've now taken four steps of meaning to explain this very simple concept that the Christ is God's chosen servant, the one that is going to do something very special for God. And so what the chief priests and the scribes want to know is if, are you the one? Are you the one that God has chosen? If you're the Christ, tell us. And they're coming from the, the perspective that he's clearly not the Christ. This is a, a backwoods, blue-collar worker who just happened to, like, get a following. He, he got these 12 guys who were also fishermen, like blue-collar dudes, and they follow him around everywhere. And he somehow has these, like, sleight-of-hand tricks where he can make people think that they were healed, but we don't actually think that he's from God. We don't actually think that he is who he claims to be. But now they've got him. They've arrested him, and they've brought him into custody. He's standing in chains before them, and now they get to just ask him the question flat out. Are you the Christ? But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. We're here at a trial, and the judge made up in mind before we ever walked into the courtroom. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. If you were in my seat, you also wouldn't answer. You know that this is a lose-lose, lose-lose-lose situation. And you wouldn't dig yourself a deeper hole by trying to answer the situation. Y'all are smart enough that if you were in my seat, you'd keep quiet too. And he could stop there. But I don't know if you guys like, have paid attention to Jesus. Jesus kind of draws this line in the sand for like the religious people. And he's like, there's the line. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He crossed that line. He says, look, y'all have heard me say, I'm the Son of Man. And from now on, whatever happens here, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of, power of, God, of the power of God. Like, I'm going to a position of authority in heaven, whatever happens here. And are you the Son of God then? And he says, you say that I am. Guilty as charged. What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from our own lips. 
So from that point, like from all of that phrasing that's happening, you can see these guys came into the room knowing what they were going to do from the get-go. They were just trying to make him say something that they could use because they actually aren't the ones that can make the, the decision. These guys are kind of middle management, and that's where we're starting to pick up as we move into these next verses. The guys that Jesus uh, is standing trial for now are middle management. They don't have the final call. There's something else that's going on. And it just leads me to ask, because when we look at these passages, sometimes we can, it's, it's so clear the way that the text is written. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And all of us are like, I mean, we're in church on Sunday, so we have to be on Jesus' team, right? So like, go Jesus, like this is, this is how it's supposed to go. And we look at those guys that are like falsely accusing him or like who are, who are twisting his words and trying to manipulate him. We go, those guys are bad guys. But I just wonder how often I'm closed off to the things that God would teach me. How many times do I walk into a room where I'm going to interact with God and say, God, you can only teach me this far, but don't mess with this stuff in my life. I don't want you in there. Are we closed off to what God would teach us? They're in the room with the Messiah, accusing the Messiah of being the Messiah so that the Messiah can become the Messiah, and they don't get it. And I don't know how many times I've been there where I've given God an ultimatum and said, God, if, you, if you're actually there, if you're really going to do this, then you better X, Y, Z. And he's like, well, X, Y, Z, PDQ, like, here we go. I'm going to take you as far as you want to go. And God completely transforms my life because of my hard-heartedness. Are we closed off to what God would teach us? But again, these guys are middle management. Let's see what happens when they speak to, I want to talk to your manager. <clears throat> and we're going to go jump into chapter 23 of Luke, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And I'll pause there. So the religious rulers now have to come into a formal court. They have to bring their case to a Roman court because the Roman court is the one that actually has jurisdiction and they have the authority to execute people, which is really what they're looking for. This is what they're gunning for. So they come and they stand before this guy, Pontius Pilate. Um, and what's crazy about the Bible is that it's not made up. Like, if you want to look in history books about Pontius Pilate, he's there. If you want to read about his military career and his political career, like, all of that stuff is in there. Um, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Pilate. He's a little bit weaselly to me. And he seems like he's always just trying to protect his job. But he always seems to do it in a way that makes Jewish people upset. So he's always in conflict with Jewish people. And now he's got a whole crowd of Jewish people on his doorstep saying that they want to execute this guy. And they bring up these charges. And look at these charges. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. 
and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So, so they give three accusations. He's misleading our nation. He's saying that we can't pay our taxes. We shouldn't pay our taxes. And he's putting himself up as a king. And Pilate doesn't care about the first two. And really, he shouldn't care about the second one because um, Jesus teaches really clearly, uh, even in Luke chapter 20, that if, if money has Caesar's picture on it, you should probably give it back to Caesar, what belongs to him. So he's never taught, like, don't pay your taxes. Um, but he keys in on this. He making, he's making himself the Christ. He's, he's calling himself the anointed one. He's a king. And in Pilate's mind, Pilate also is like a level up of middle management. Like, he's got some power, but then he answers also to Caesar. And if anybody tries to, like, dethrone Caesar, then Pilate definitely loses his job. And if Caesar Caesar hears that somebody's trying to dethrone Caesar in Pilate's little corner of the world, then it looks like Pilate is the one who is supporting the usurper, and so Pilate gets in trouble then, too. So Pilate has to deal with that question. If this guy's trying to make himself a king, then my neck is on the line. If I don't deal with it, and he does try to lead a rebellion, then I lose my head whether he succeeds or not. And if I do deal with it, then maybe this will, like, whatever. Like, I just, I... But he says, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, that's what you're saying. That's what they were saying. That's what, that's what you're saying. And Pilate's like, look, like, I don't, this guy's not guilty of anything. You guys are asking for the death penalty. He's not guilty. He's standing in a legal court of law, and the judge on the, on, on the judgment seat says, innocent. Verse 5, but they were urgent. The crowd was urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And, and Galilee doesn't mean anything to us. Like, we, we don't know the land, or we don't know any of that. But, like, but Galilee to Pontius Pilate is, that's somebody else's job. I get to pass the buck. Let's look at verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Are you from Galilee? And verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. So, Pilate tries to pass the buck. Oh, he's from Galilee? Like, that's Herod's job. Like, Herod can deal with that. And I don't really like Herod, but at least this gets it out of my plate. So, like... Let Herod go deal with this guy. And Herod's excited about this. Herod Antipas is the guy who actually, long story short, made sure that John the Baptist lost his head. And the thing that was interesting is that he kept John the Baptist imprisoned for a long time because he liked to talk with John, even though John was telling him, hey, you probably not, shouldn't have made your, uh, your sister-in-law divorce her husband so she could marry you. Like, that, that's not cool. Don't do that. So, but Herod still liked to listen to John, the baptizer, and so he kept him in prison so he could go and, and listen to him philosophize. And in the same way, he's excited now. Well, I've heard about this Jesus guy. He's cousin to John, and I liked John, even though he told me stuff I didn't want to hear. And, but, but Jesus has 
parlor tricks. Like I've heard he can do stuff and I want to, I want to see something. And so he's excited and he, he's like, all right, show me, show me a trick. And Jesus doesn't say anything at all. He's got Herod like trying to entice him to use his power to show him something. And he's got, you know, the people who are accusing him like vehemently screaming these accusations like, hey, this guy is, is evil. This guy is going to lead us in the, wrong, in the wrong direction. And you've got to take care of this, Herod. And Herod's like, he's not saying anything. He's not showing me anything. So he puts his royal robes on him, dresses him up in, a, in an extra pair of of, of royal robes, kind of as a joke. Like, if this is the king of the Jews, like, at least I'll send him off in style. So he puts his robe over his shoulders and sends him back to Pilate. And it's kind of like an inside joke between Herod and Pilate. They weren't friends before, but something about this exchange brought them together, which, hey, Jesus has a way of bringing people together, and I don't know that it necessarily was a good thing here. I don't know what to say about these guys. There's an arrogance here. <laughs> There's a haughtiness. But Jesus is the smartest guy in the room. He doesn't, he doesn't only like know how the world is pieced together because he kind of made it. He also knows the hearts and minds of the people in the room. And he just chooses not to say anything. You want to talk about like a legal defense? Like I'm pretty sure Jesus could argue, out-argue anybody in the room. And he just chooses not to. But he looks at this trial and says, I've got nothing to say. I'm guilty of what they're accusing me of. But the ramifications of it, they don't understand. I got a message from a friend this morning and... Um, There was some conflict going on and family stuff, and he was concerned for his wife, which he ought to be. Um, but they'd come, they'd come across somebody who was giving them strong criticism. And my friend was lamenting to me. He said, I didn't say anything back to him. He said, I didn't, I didn't defend my family. I didn't defend my wife. And now, like, I'm concerned that I let this hurt into my family. And I, I love this guy to death, and I appreciate his heart. But I said to him, like, if we're looking at Jesus in his trial, our strength doesn't come from our defense. Church, our strength is not in our argument. Whether we're right or wrong, our strength is not in our argument. Our strength is in his love through us. Which sometimes means we're quiet when people are lying to us and lying about us. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man who is misleading your people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. 
a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to him, Why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. In a court of law, two more legal declarations of innocence. And the crowd prevails. There's a, a small reminder, if we're paying close attention, that all of this is happening around the, the festival of Passover. At the festival of Passover, it was common for um, a, a Roman official to release somebody from prison. And so that's where this Barabbas thing, it kind of comes in from left field. And Luke doesn't explain it because he assumes you already know what's happening here. Um, Dr. Luke, I don't know if he thought that we'd still be reading this today. But he assumed that you would be familiar enough with Roman law that you would get where this was coming from. Um, And so Pilate's like, look, I'm going to let this guy go. Like, it's Passover, I'm just going to let him go. And they're like, no, 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 we don't want Jesus. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas was a guy who actually had claimed to be the Messiah and actually had led an insurrection in Jerusalem and actually had killed people. He had done all of the things that Jesus was accused of doing. He had actually been the problem, and they're the ones that he asked for. He's the one that they ask for. I'll just say democracy doesn't get a good rap in this scene. The majority rule. And in a world that is increasingly loud, in a world that is increasingly frenzied, to whom do we look to decide what's right? We know the nature of psychology is such that, for real, if we hear a lie repeated enough times, our brain just accepts it as truth. Like It's something that's built into our psychology, that if we hear something repeatedly, our brain's like, oh, this data must be real. And more than any other generation, we have messages at our fingertips and our eyeballs and our ears 24-7. Some of us sleep with it on. So to whom will we look to decide what is right? The will of the crowd was to have an evil man among themselves re-accepted into society and to have an innocent man executed. And Jesus bore an unjust trial in order to forgive our deep offenses. And in the moments where we feel like we've been wronged or we have suffered injustice, 
does not excuse evil men from doing evil or evil people from doing evil. But if our, our hope, our hope of glory is in Christ and not of this earth, then maybe we need not feel so desirous to shout people down. We can stand for truth. Jesus himself was the truth. And yet he cared enough for the people to bear this unjust trial to show them his deep love for them. And if we're going to follow him, maybe that'll shape what we say. And maybe that'll shape what we don't say. Would you pray with me? God, your purposes are beyond our understanding. There's so many times where we walk into a situation and have no idea what it is that you want for us to do in it, much less what you're trying to accomplish. And we're thankful for Jesus who knew what he came to do and had the strength of character to keep his mouth shut when people were lying about him. to continue to set an example of love, joy, peace, patience. Would you form in us the fruit of your spirit? It's in your name that we pray. Thank you.